Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Promising Young Women, the acclaimed new rape-revenge thriller by writer-director Emerald Fennell. Carrie Mulligan stars as Cassandra, a woman who targets rapists by pretending to be blackout drunk at nightclubs. It's nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, along with earning rave reviews as a feminist masterpiece. But we both absolutely hated it. (laughs) Not a good movie, Morgan. I was highly irritated. (laughs) Yes, I profoundly hated this movie. I was so mad the whole time. I feel like I would definitely not have liked this movie, even if I had seen it like at Sundance last year when it premiered. But I definitely was primed to be skeptical because I had seen some people, you know, responding skeptically to it. And I had unfortunately been spoiled for the ending, which I had tried to avoid. And we will not talk about the ending until we get to the end of the podcast and we will give warnings. I don't think I would have liked the ending anyway. Again, we'll talk about that later. But because I had that in my head the whole time, I kind of was like thinking about that. And so was like skeptically evaluating the movie with that in my mind. And I was just so put off by the whole thing. I think it's just politically empty and also badly executed on basically every level. So a big two thumbs down. The fact that this is getting a great deal of positive praise from women critics who are saying it's like a feminist triumph and are like, finally, a woman is being allowed to make a movie about rape culture. It's like, many of those films already exist, including media, which is like popular entertainment. And this feels like cynical and bad. I mean, I think we should start off with just the initial premise, because I think even though many of our listeners may not have seen the film itself, um, there's a good chance you've seen the trailer, because the trailer was like a huge hit. And the trailer was also essentially what Emerald Fennell pitched. Like she pitched this movie in 2017. So this was like an immediately like post Weinstein, like it's, it, you know, it's being explicitly marketed as like a quote unquote Me Too era film, you know. And it was picked up based on the pitch. And then she very quickly wrote this screenplay based around the idea of a character who kind of honey traps date rapists by pretending to be drunk and then picking them up and then exposing them. And that's kind of the introductory sequence of the film is like it begins with this scene where you see her blackout drunk in a club and then these guys are kind of talking about her and talking about like oh she's hot or like should you go over and like the conversation even within the first few minutes I was like oh wait this film is really poorly written because the dialogue is extremely contrived and implausible and it's just sort of like filler stereotypes of like how men would be talking in that situation but it doesn't feel like the way any actual person would talk because it completely kind of lacks subtlety and naturalism. And then we kind of go into the actual introduction of what she's doing. So like she brings a guy home and like gives him various opportunities to like not rape her. But then he does actually make his move. And once he's like got her pants off, then she reveals that she's not drunk and like highlights the fact that he's a monster. And then we see her do something similar with like a different guy. And this whole concept is like extremely poorly executed. We're going to talk a bit more kind of in the spoiler section at the end about why this film just fails utterly as a revenge movie. But Morgan and I were both just like, this whole premise makes no sense. Because like, first of all, I think it's bad filmmaking and bad storytelling to only show these two guys because it's kind of setting up this idea that like the only response she's going to get 
is from rapists. And like this film in general kind of makes it look like every man is a rapist. Um, oh, yeah. Because like the only, like in, in reality, what happens is like if you are, you know, a helpless woman in public, a lot of women are going to help you. Like in a, in a nightclub situation like that, strange women are going to try and help you get home. There's a high probability that some bar employees might help you, like especially if they're women. And also there are men who have ethics and would also help you. Like I literally yeah. know people who have been like dangerously drunk in public and have been helped out by strangers, including men. You know, it's not, you know, we live in a society, Morgan. <laughs> and then as you pointed out, once she actually gets into this scenario where she's home alone, completely unarmed, like she would be attacked or raped at some point. Like some guy would physically assault her. Well, the movie posits that like as soon as she confronts these men with the fact that they are bad and that they are doing a bad thing, that they immediately will just like shrivel up and be like, I don't find you attractive anymore because you're sober and scary. And like, maybe that would happen sometimes. But other times, these men would just be like, yeah, I'm gonna rape you though. Like that, come on, like that would happen. And instead, it's just like, her whole revenge ploy is just to be like, to like shake her finger and be like, no, 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 don't you feel bad now? And leave. And that's the only thing she does. Like, I don't, what? That's not, what the fuck? Like, that's not anything. That's nothing. They're just gonna continue on. I don't understand what the appeal of this is. And then people tweeting about this movie or whatever being like, oh man, this is so cathartic. Like, she's such a badass or whatever. And be like, she literally does nothing to any of them. Yeah, she doesn't prevent them from doing this again. We are kind of operating under the assumption that by shaming them, she's stopped them from doing this. But like, they like know on some level that they are rapists. So it's like, I mean, it's just, the only possible discouragement is like, from now on, they're worried this is going to happen to them again and they might get arrested or something. But it's like that, like it's functionally not a revenge movie. Like there's um, a Substack article, which we're going to link to in the show notes. And I think we're going to uh, reference several times in this, which is a really smart and thoughtful takedown written by Aisha Siddiqui. And she kind of goes into depth about how the film fails as a revenge movie and is just like completely false advertising as a feminist film. But like when I see people kind of talking about how this is like, oh, like a really angry film about someone taking back control. It's like, it's none of those things. And there's literally quotes from Emerald Fennell talking about how she doesn't really like the concept of anger and kind of the point of the film is actually more like a subversion of the revenge genre. And I'm like, you can't subvert that because the revenge genre, when it's focused around vulnerable people, the whole point is that it is subversive because in real life you don't have any way of taking control over that situation. And like, I generally don't like to watch rape revenge movies because I feel like I can't trust a lot of filmmakers to deal with that topic in like a sensitive light. But it doesn't mean that those films don't exist by both men and women. Well, and if she wanted to really interrogate the idea of revenge and anger as like potentially toxic emotions, right? I'm not saying that I necessarily feel that way. I think anger can be very productive. But I saw something a few months ago. I don't think it was related to this movie at all. But like someone just saying something in response to like something about writing that like revenge isn't really a thing that exists in the real world, right? Like it's an emotion it's that a, we all kind of fantasy. fantasize yeah. about, right? But like, yeah, people don't do that. We like, we don't have that power. And I think you could make a movie 
about someone who's sort of consumed by the idea of revenge or anger or violence and probe how that can be corrosive. Like, sure. But that's not what this movie is doing. Like, this movie has no thoughts. So it's just too stupid. Like, the fucking John Wick franchise is a revenge movie. So many action films are revenge films. But as you said, with this being a fundamentally fantastical genre, which is all about the fantasy of being able to take back control by murdering rapists. Like, this film is also a fantasy, because every single scenario she creates is completely contrived. And most of the characters just feel like straw man characters. Like, they don't function like a real person. So... I think at this point, like we can kind of go into a bit more detail about the premise um, for those who haven't seen the film. As the title suggests, kind of the idea is that the main character is this woman who had a really promising future ahead of her, but her life was sort of torn apart by rape. And in this case, kind of as the film progresses, we find out that Cassandra's best friend, Nina, was raped when they were both, they were both med school students. And after that, um, it's kind of implied that Cassandra kind of dropped out of school and she's now about to turn 30 and she's living at home and she's now working in a coffee shop and she's like abandoned everything to do with her old life and her secret hobby is this kind of uh, vengeance plot against rapists in nightclubs. And then kind of the, the next part of the story is like they reintroduced the idea of her past because um, there was this guy she went to med school with uh, played by Bo Burnham who is a filmmaker and comedian and is very good in this film and he kind of comes to the coffee shop and they have a meet cute and she reluctantly agrees to a date because like she quite likes him and you can kind of tell that she like is starting to be at the point where she wants to regain some part of her life even though she's overall quite reluctant but while meeting him she finds out that the guy who raped her friend Nina is now having just like a really happy life and is about to get married and like the rest of their social circle from med school are all doing really well and this kind of propels her into the next phase of her vengeance plot where she wants to get back in touch with everyone who was involved in kind of Nina's rape in the aftermath where by this point we basically assume that Nina's dead it's quite clear from the beginning so that's not like a real spoiler but um Nina killed herself at some point after this took place and so Cassandra starts like hunting these people down and this is where we really start to enter the straw man department (laughs) because the first person (laughs) she contacts is one of her old med school pals played by Alison Brie this film is absolutely stacked with character actors every single role is played by like a great character actor her parents are played by Clancy Brown and Jennifer Coolidge who are both great but anyway she kind of invites Alison Brie out to dinner and when this character shows up, I was like, oh, this film also has no respect for women. <laughs> because, no, yeah, because like you have this situation where Cassandra's obviously the character we're meant to be siding with, although she's also kind of intentionally introduced as this like scary and morally ambiguous figure. But then this old friend character, Madison, is this sort of suburban wine mom stereotype where she's rich and successful and like she meets up with Cassandra and they have this very frivolous conversation and like the Cassandra tricks her into drinking really heavily at this like posh hotel bar and everything that Alison Brie's character Madison says is just like oh well you know men want a good girl and like making it sound like she's just this sort of like hetero basic woman stereotype with no depth whatsoever And we very quickly learn that she was someone who essentially abandoned Nina after this rape took place. And we can kind of infer that they all had this like party girl lifestyle. 
And she has no real kind of moral qualms about what happened in the past. And I kind of kept thinking about the TV show I May Destroy You, which we did an episode on, which was amazing and has this really emotionally intense, like morally thoughtful, nuanced look at rape culture and how different people respond to being raped or being rapists or having pushed the boundaries of consent in one way or another. And in this film, it's just like there's none of that at all. This Madison character, just terrible. And um, I think we will enter the second phase of spoilers. Should we say what, what happens to Madison? I think we can spoil everything except the very end. Okay. Without it really mattering because yeah. who gives a shit? Like, yeah. It's just, just so absurd, the whole plot. We what we will say when we get to the very end, when we're going to mm-hmm. give away this sort of twist. But um, this this stuff, I, I mean, it, yeah. it really is immaterial, in my opinion. Yeah. So carry so, on, Cassandra, Cassandra, at this point, has like been tricking Madison into drinking really heavily during this lunch. And kind of talking about their past and trying to like winkle out more information about what happened to Nina and what is now happening with this guy, Al, who was the rapist. And because Madison kind of expresses no guilt or proper memories of that period in their college life, she like basically kicks off her next step of her revenge plan, which is she's corralled this guy into getting Madison into a hotel room. And at that point, we implicitly assume that he is going to rape her. But then kind of later on, we find out that she's not actually done that. But this is kind of one of the key criticisms that we, and indeed many other critics, had of this film, which is that the women are just like punished so much more than the men. Because she has essentially set up this woman to either be raped or for a long period to think that she has been raped. When the only punishment that Cassandra levels on actual rapist men is like telling them off. Right. Well, and the uh, the next person she goes to is, like, the dean of the med school, who's played by Connie Britton. And she, like, kidnaps her teenage daughter and uses her as, like, a, you know, ploy to get this woman to admit that she was wrong about letting the guy who raped the friend off at the time when they were all in med school. And obviously the teenage girl is fine. Like she just dropped her off at a diner or something. But it's so manipulative and gross. And the character Connie Britton is playing similarly is just a completely two-dimensional. She doesn't remember this incident. She's like, well, that kind of thing happens all the time and like whatever, whatever. And obviously, you know college administrators we know from the news like there are stories about this kind of situation being mishandled all the fucking time but there's just the way it's written is so superficial it's incredibly simplistic they've literally got this character who's kind of spouting the stereotype of every single response to this yes and i think it's meant to be a situation where it's like oh women are also participating in rape culture and it's like but it's not going any further than that cuz it's literally yes. her being like oh well you know we don't want to ruin this boy's future and like we we can't we can't just like assume that everyone's guilty and i'm like this is not smart or good dialogue and it is far below the level of complexity that the tv show veronica mars which was aimed at teenagers was achieving in 2005 a show which is also about someone trying to find revenge for their dead friend's rape. So... Well, we're sort of outlining all of these political issues we have 
with this movie, which are many and varied. But it sort of keeps coming back to the problem that it's just really poorly written, right? It's just bad and implausible. So if all of these conversations were like incredibly well written and nuanced, I still think we'd be having like scruples with the movie, but probably we would have it would have gone down a lot smoother, right? Because you would have had some kind of emotional response to something that was going on. Whereas I the entire time was just like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. Every single thing that's happening is absurd because there's no sense of any character in this movie behaving like a human person. Except- I mean, Laverne Cox's character. So like, I mean, Cassandra works in this like absurd kind of cartoonish coffee shop where basically it's like the dream coffee shop where you just hang around in a cute aesthetic and barely do any work. And her manager slash co-worker is played by Laverne Cox. And she's literally like the black friend. Like all of her dialogue is just asking Cassandra supportive leading questions about like how she's doing. And then encouraging her to get a better job because she's like the support character. And she has no like personality or life of her own. She's just there to provide support. And I was just like, I cannot believe I'm seeing this in the year 2021. I mean... I mean, I can believe it, I, I but like, I'm grossed I, out I by the fact that it's not. It. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't strike me as much, I think, because everyone was so badly written that I was just like, well, here's another thing. Like, you know, <laughs> they, everyone was completely superficial and had no depth. And like all the characters except the main character exist merely to revolve around her which like not that every movie has to have a bunch of supporting characters with like profound backstories that's fine but like I mean I agree with your critique for sure but it was more of the same to me in a way because it was all so absurd and sort of thinly written and the comment you made earlier about that first scene with the the guys talking at the club and being like oh this is bad I had exactly the same reaction and immediately was just like oh I don't buy this movie's worldview like at all and then continued to feel that way watching the whole film and it's not that men don't do bad things or say bad things to each other or like I mean we know that this is true but it felt so much like a woman's superficial imagination of like you know what men do when they're alone together and like maybe if a man had written and directed this I guess we wouldn't be saying that but like it just felt so poorly conceived and cartoonish in a way that then made me like suspicious of the whole thing and nothing that happened after that convinced me otherwise right and over the past week since I watched this movie, I watched both um, The Death of Stalin and Wolf of Wall Street, which are movies I'd seen before, but not for a while, which are very different films, but both have a lot of scenes of like guys talking amongst themselves in a way where they're like trying to perform for each other to impress each other about like women and sex, et cetera, et cetera, and like saying gross stuff and whatever in a way that's clearly intentional, right? Like, it's not like the movies are endorsing these guys' behavior, but, you know. And watching them, I was like, oh, right, this all makes sense to me. Like, you watch this and you're like, this is a toxic environment, but when all these guys get together, like, that's what they default to because they're just trying to, like, you know, 
protect their masculinity. And that's an interesting topic to probe because that is a huge problem in society, I think, right? And this movie doesn't have any sense of like how that dynamic functions, which is actually part of what I think she's trying to get at, but she doesn't actually seem to understand it. Or if she does, she can't translate it into the movie, right? Instead, the men are all just like cartoonish evil villains who like creep up on you and then bam, they're all rapists. And like, that's not interesting yeah. or how it works. And like the most complexly written and performed probably character is Bo Burnham's love interest character. Because Cassandra, the heroine, just doesn't ring true on any level. Even though there, like, were some moments where, like, when there's moments when she's, like, really shocked or disturbed, I was like, okay, I am really empathising with this. Because, like, it's a very easy situation to empathise with. But there's no kind of good people, right? (laughs) There's, like, there's no kind of understanding of, like, how there might be like people who are attempting to help her. Like the the whole point of her parents is they're both just like extremely detached or like, you know, after 10 years, they've now essentially given up on the idea of trying to engage with her. Like there's not really enough depth there to really extrapolate what they're trying to do with the parents. But then like every single other person in the movie is just like a bad person or Bo Burnham. (laughs) Laverne Cox is just nice. Yeah, Laverne Cox is just nice, but, but it's like... Not in an interesting way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought Carrie Mulligan was fine. Like, she's a great actor, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Carrie Mulligan. <laughs> but, like, the character is so incomprehensible to me that I didn't find the performance great because her behavior doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't get it. It doesn't... Why are yeah. you doing Yeah, I mean, this? she seems so vicious when she's reacting to the old med school friend and the dean of students. She does these, like, horrifying things. And then the film dials it back because the film doesn't want to be a revenge movie. But then she's not doing anything particularly bad to the rapist guys while also putting herself in a massive amount of danger. And there was another thing in Aisha Siddiqui's Substack post, which I really liked, which was kind of pointing out that the kind of second introductory scene basically sets the tone for the rest of the film. Because, like, after she's entrapped this rapist at the beginning of the film, we see her doing a walk of shame where, you know, you see this, like, red, you assume it's blood, dripping down her arm. And at that point, you assume that it's basically what the trailer suggested it is, which is a legitimate revenge movie where she's murdering these guys. And then it turns out that it's just ketchup and it's a fake out, which is kind of thematically what the whole film is like. It's, like, all just fake outs where she doesn't really do anything that dangerous. And also that kind of leads into a little moment where there's these guys catcalling her on the street and she like defeats them by just like staring them down. And I was like, if there was a way to like defeat catcallers, we would have (laughs) discovered it by now because believe me. (laughs) Yeah, that scene, I was like, what is she? Again, the idea of shame as used by this movie, right? It's like, that's not how human behavior works. Like, shame can be very effective, but not in this specific scenario. (laughs) Like, that doesn't make any sense. And again, the way that she uses it against these men that she meets in the clubs, again, I get some of them would, I guess, just be like, I don't want to deal with you anymore. Get out of my house. But other people reacting to the shame that she makes them feel would respond in the other direction and try to make her go away by, like, violently attacking her. And the movie doesn't grasp that at all. I mean, it's weird that there's kind of a lack of 
that sort of internalized toxic masculinity, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, you react with violence. Because, like, for the most part, men in this film don't react with violence. And it's like, so you have a really negative view of men, but also you don't think that they're going to react with violence because that's not going to work within this completely fictionalized fantasy nonsense framework you've created. Yes. It's like the constant threat of rape, but she doesn't actually want to show that, right? It's just like we have... I mean, obviously, that threat does exist in the real world, but... In this universe, it's like that's all that women think about all the time, which is not my personal experience. Like, you can't live like that. You would go insane, which ties into the, like, character problems or, like, backstory problems, I suppose, with the Cassie character beyond the sort of inconsistency of her actual behavior in the movie, which you just described, which is that, like, so her friend got to horrifically raped when they're in med school, right? Which obviously would be incredibly traumatizing for this woman. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. And it would also be very upsetting for her close friend. But the movie basically posits that like, like we don't know anything really about this friend except that she was friends with the main character. She got raped and then implicitly she killed herself. So I guess when you get raped, then there, that's just it. There's nothing else. And also then your best friend's life has to be over because this was such a horrifying trauma that like there's, you just can't cope and you know, life is over. And again, I'm not trying to in any way diminish the like pain that people feel after this experience. I have never been raped. I cannot imagine. But this is shit that women have had to deal with for literally forever. And like people deal with it in different ways, but like, People have learned how to sort of, like, have a life, right? Like, your life isn't over just because a man does this to you. And part of what I thought was so amazing about I May Destroy You was that it was... Because was it engaged with that idea, right? Like, obviously, the main character in that show is going through something incredibly painful, but it is about her as a whole person in such a powerful way, and all the other characters are so real, too. And in this, it's like this horrible thing happens to you and then that's it. Like, that's really what I got from this movie. This kind of goes back to the original issue with the fact that it's a complete failure as as a revenge film, right? Because the revenge film genre is based around the premise that a single traumatic event can indeed completely consume some people. Those films have, like, a really powerful driving force because it's narratively satisfying. And indeed, for some people, that, like, is your actual experience of a traumatic event. And rape revenge movies are about people who are like, I'm going to destroy this other person because they destroyed my life. But then this film, once again, doesn't do that. So it's like you've created a false equivalence almost. So it's like you've got this idea where it's like, oh, okay, we've bought into the rape revenge idea where it's like her entire life and is now centered around this for 10 years. But then also like you haven't actually really done anything Right, And the film doesn't really kind of dig into the psychological reasoning why she would be targeting these other men rather than the original guy. And I get why someone would do that because she like is clearly avoiding really tackling the initial trauma that she experienced, which is like losing her friend and feeling betrayed by this entire circle, social circle of med school students. But it's also like you have to kind of infer that in your own mind because the film doesn't really explain why she hasn't done like the five minutes of Googling required 
to find this original guy, Al, and just like murder him. And right. also, as Aisha Siddiqui points out, the fact that she's a med student just like never comes up because you'd kind of assume that she's going to use like some medical knowledge to dissect someone. And it's like, oh no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, the med school angle is totally irrelevant for like anything that happens in the movie, except that Bo Burnham winds up being a doctor, which like he could just be a doctor. Yeah. Like if they all been in college, he could also just be a doctor. Like there's no, yeah. and that also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's Cause a doctor. Because like, like it's, it's, you're kind of using these sort of like loosely familiar scenarios of like American college campus, like rape culture, which is very different from the way things are in Britain. It's like, we also have the same overarching problem, which is rape culture. But like, like the campus system is just different in the UK. Emerald Fennell is a British filmmaker and this is a film that's set in America and it did to a certain extent feel like one of those films that's like not especially engaged in a specific way to the idea of it being set in America although it's kind of a more wide-ranging issue to do with the aesthetic which we will talk about in a minute but Emerald Fennell is extraordinarily posh and I think that does kind of shine through in some elements that I'll discuss to do with law enforcement in like our spoiler section like a very posh English filmmaker making their first movie in quite a rushed manner about someone who's meant to be like a relatable American woman. The setting issue in terms of like college versus med school, I definitely felt was a bit off. I mean, I've never been to med school. I'm sure there are wild parties, but it definitely, as you say, was engaging more with like tropes you hear about undergrad experiences at at colleges where there's like a wild party scene. My women's college was not like that, so I don't have personal experience of that. But the setting, it wasn't like I watched the movie and was like, oh, this is obviously made by an English person. Like, this is so totally wrong. No, But it was just kind of generic in a way that I felt was sort of boring and also counterproductive because it was so vague that you kind of lose a sense of specificity about anything that's happening, right? So one of the key selling points of this film is that it has this very vibrant aesthetic, like which was extremely apparent in the trailer and was once again one of the reasons why the trailer was really popular. So you have lots of um, kind of extreme femininity and pastel colours. The main character wears loads of really cute outfits and kind of disguises and stuff. And there's loads of sort of shots where... Um, it's like a centered shot where you have her in the middle or you have like a cool prop in the middle and there is like her house is really pastely in a sort of intentionally tacky way. And then the cafe she works at is very sort of millennial pink sort of cutesy visuals. And there's also loads of kind of ironic pop choices. And I didn't feel like the actual content of the script and the themes of the movie tied into the fact that it was that stylized. Because, like, obviously the kind of the idea of, like, ironic femininity and violence is, it's not a new idea, but there's nothing, like, intrinsically wrong with it. There's plenty of movies that kind of play around with that idea. And I guess it is, like, an interesting fit for this theme. But, like, when you look at, like, a filmmaker who has a notably stylized aesthetic, like, Wes Anderson is the one who's, like, the most obvious comparison to this because of all the, like, centred shots and really kind of fake-looking, intentionally cute sets. But also like David Lynch or someone, like the actual content of their films and like the dialogue style and stuff all kind of fits together to give you this world where it's like their world, right? So the visual style and the music and the characters and the dialogue and stuff all fit together. And in this, the writing was just like not good. It wasn't like a stylized story. It was just a story that didn't make sense as soon as you started paying attention to it. Whereas the visual style was just like extremely there. The most I can say it was like very visible. And I was just like, what are you trying to tell me here? It's just like loads of girl boss energy. 
oh, we can make a rape movie that's also like hyper feminine. And it's like, sure you can, but what are you trying to tell me with this? Yeah, I thought it was really ineffective. I didn't understand what she was trying to convey, as you say, with the pastels, etc. And I also thought, like, the cinematography is not good. It's fine, I guess, like, competent, but it's not particularly good or interesting. And the difference between this and, you know, Wes Anderson is that, like, everything about the way those movies are constructed is intended to create a visual experience for the audience that creates an emotion or mood. Someone said about Wes Anderson, like one of his collaborators said about him at one point that like all of the sort of artifice to his movies is totally necessary and intentional because it's how he conveys emotion, right? Like he's obviously like a repressed waspy type and the emotion comes through in the visuals, which I really think is true. And you get these shots that are so carefully constructed and all of the production design is so, you know, meticulous. And in this, it was clearly they'd spent a lot of time on the costuming and the production design. But A, as you say, like, I don't know what I was supposed to get from them. And then also B, like, the way the shots were framed was so anodyne that, like, what? (laughs) Like, the visuals of the movie aren't conveying anything to me emotionally as a viewer, right? Because I mean, it's just Instagram. It's like, yeah. we've made this like really powerful Instagram aesthetic, which also wasn't especially original. Like, it's definitely very familiar. Nothing wrong with that if you're doing something interesting with it, but they really weren't. Yeah. And I again, I've seen lots of people praising this, and I just feel like, but if it's not achieving I mean, if you compare anything... it to someone like Sofia Coppola, who also makes very visually stylized films somewhere, and it's like, she actually understands what to do with the vibe. Yes, this movie has no vibe. There's there's none. It just it's like gray. It's very gray movie despite the pastels, don't you think? Like the lighting just feels very like ugh. It was not pleasant to look at, which again, if you're going for a sort of like revenge movie type thing, there should be an element of like pleasure to looking at it because those movies are these heightened kind of horror type things and this movie just does not have that at all again the fact that it was nominated for directing at the oscars no comment (laughs) very embarrassing yeah um shall we talk about spoilers yeah i it just i have so much to say and i think we've pretty much run out of, of things before we hit the spoiler section so so What winds up happening is that she basically is like, I'm going to renounce my whole revenge thing because it's unhealthy. She goes and sees Nina's mom, who's played by Molly Shannon, the great Molly Shannon, for like one scene. There's one scene where Molly Shannon's like, this seems really unhealthy. Like, maybe you shouldn't do this. Never touched upon again. And she starts going out seriously with Bo Burnham. And then Allison Brie comes back and gives her a really helpful deus ex machina video of the Nina's rape, in which Bo Burnham's character either, I mean, you hear his voice, I don't know if he actually appears. And so then that sort of sets her off again. And she confronts him. And he he tells her the location of the bachelor party for the guy who 
raped Nina. And she goes dressed up as a stripper to like exact revenge upon him. A sexy nurse doctor yes. stripper, crucially. Yes. And when he and like has this conversation with him when he's um, handcuffed to the bed uh, where she reveals herself and in the ensuing altercation he winds up suffocating her to death. It's the most violent scene in the movie and it happens in real time so you just see him suffocating her for like two to three minutes. Yes. Max Greenfield, Schmidt from New Girl, comes in the next morning and they're like, oh shit, and then burn her body and think it's all, they've gotten away with the whole thing. And then on the day of the wedding, in fact, the police show up. She's like sent the tape to Alfred Molina, who we didn't mention, but um, he was the lawyer for the guy, the rapist, who she'd met, visited earlier in the film and who felt bad about it. And then also had like timed text messages to go to Bo Burnham's phone being like, ha ha ha, you know, enjoy the wedding, like love Cassie and Nina and like a smiley, winking smiley face. And the movie is over and the police have, you know, arrested the, the yeah. rapist. And this is supposedly the happy ending. Yes. By this point, I was just so, I was just like, when will this movie end? Like, <laughs> I just need this to be over. Like, I don't, but even the murder, which uh, that was the thing I was, Boiled for, so I knew it was coming. I have seen many people be like, I found this profoundly upsetting, which I completely understand, but I was so emotionally checked out of the movie by this point that I was just like, like, just make this end. Like, I, I just was so frustrated. Everything about this is bad and stupid. Like, <laughs> I was so angry. So after she's killed, during the next couple of days when she's been reported missing by her parents, there is a scene where the detective visits Bo Burnham because he's the boyfriend and has a brief conversation with him like, oh, well, it seems like your girlfriend was like a bit unhinged. So I guess that's fine that she went missing. And I'm like, it's extremely plausible that they're just like half-assing this investigation because it's the police and it's an adult missing person. So it's like, yeah, they're not going to be prioritizing this. So it's like, okay, the film has now set up the concept of the police as not particularly useful, which is also implied by the fact that like no one was ever kind of legally penalized for the initial rape. And the fact that the world is full of rapists who are not being punished by the police. But then the happy ending of the film relies on the idea that like a cavalcade of police show up with perfect timing at this wedding to theatrically arrest this man. While at the same time as these text messages arrive. And it's like obviously we can have some artistic license because like it's a fictional world. But there's no kind of like explanation for like, oh yeah, suddenly the police are actually great and they've saved the day and these guys are going to suffer. Which raises a number of questions, including, I guess you can like assume in your mind that the reason why the police are so effective here is because they have been contacted by a lawyer character who she speaks to earlier in the film, who is feeling very guilty about his own role in rape cases defending rapists. And he is now using all of his legal skills to get the police there. But we don't see that on screen, so we have to assume that happened. So we have now got a scenario where this rapist has been arrested at the wedding and Bo Burnham is going to be publicly humiliated because people will presumably now know that he was on this college tape. But like also, these characters are all like extremely privileged rich doctor types. And it kind of seems like they're probably just not really going to suffer. Oh, no way. Yeah. He's going to have a really good lawyer. It's probably outside the statute of limitations. The whole film has been setting up the idea of them all just characterizing this as like, oh, it was in the past and we were young. 
the yeah, the fact that like the police swoop in to save the day at the end, obviously ethically bankrupt. As you say, like clearly they're all gonna get off. So, I mean, they found her body, but also she was like coming at him with a scalpel. So I feel yeah. like it's pretty good case for self defense. It's just preposterous. The whole thing is preposterous. But beyond the police issue, which is an absurd way to end a supposed, like, revenge. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Her revenge was to get murdered. And then the people who murdered her may well get off. Well, this goes back to my, like, theory about the way this film handles, like, the concept of rape, right? So the one female character who, again, we really know nothing about except that she happened to be friends with the main character. Like, why did they want to be doctors? We have no idea. We, we don't know. No idea. So she kills herself after this. And then Cassie also gets murdered. So one woman gets raped, and the effect of that is that two women have to die in order to get, like, justice in quotes, which is the police arresting the guy. Like, what? No, I reject this. I find that so unbelievably gross. And it's Yeah, because, not- like, if they'd framed this in the context of this being, like, a tragedy about the way rape culture, like, punishes the wrong people, that'd be fine. But this is, like, portrayed in, like, essentially a victorious way. Yes. And it's being received by many, many people as, like, a groundbreaking and impressive and emotionally satisfying both revenge movie and film about rape culture. And I am just, like, baffled, especially by professional film critics, because... This is not a topic unexplored by art. Yes. I mean, the it ending on that text message from, like, Nina and Cassie, or Cassie and Nina, from, like, the beyond, being like, haha, we've got you now. I was like, but they're dead, so it doesn't They're doesn't dead, and it's like, the film could have leaned into the idea of Cassie basically being, like, as nuts as she occasionally seems, right? Because, like, if she was, like, full Joker, this film would actually be better. Because, like, we have no idea if Nina... I mean, Nina probably wouldn't want her to spend almost a decade of her life on, like, a weird revenge spree. No! Probably not! <laughs> that seems so it, bad! So it kind of seems... Like, there's a speech towards the end where, like, we finally hear more about, like, Cassie's relationship with Nina. And it... it like, she's... It kind of sounds like she's basically either been obsessed with this girl since she was four years old or like in retrospect has become obsessed obviously because this girl died but like the film never really digs into the fact that this is like a super weird way of responding which is actually would be a more interesting film if they were like oh she's like completely obsessed with this dead girl well this is part of the problem right like she'd been friends since they were four and then somehow wind up in med school together which is like not realist i mean i guess that could happen I mean, it's but fine. like you know you can you can tr- apply to the same places whatever i will fully accept that their best is but i do have an issue with that because she who's going on about how like well nina was always so amazing she was the best etc cetera, etc cetera. and like then she got raped and like her whole personality changed and like that adds to this sort of fantasy of this one thing like destroying this woman and again i'm not trying to suggest that this can't be an unbelievably like destructive and traumatic experience but 
because she's known Nina forever, she can be like, well, she was always perfect. And like, if we knew that she was just crazy and was making this up, that would be different. But if we had any background on Nina, like maybe she's had other trauma in her life. Maybe she has some like other problem that she's having a lot of difficulty with. And then this thing happens to her and it's like just too much, right? You could come up with a backstory for this woman where like, this event is like compounding other problems and then maybe she I mean, kills herself, the film, right? Whatever. The film doesn't even make anything of its own title, which is Promising Young Women, which kind of feeds, like you would assume that there was going to be some kind of vague touching upon the idea of these two women as like high achievers who assume the world is going to go great for them because like they're these like pretty white girls who come from privilege and have like succeeded academically to an extremely impressive degree and all their peers have gone on from that but their lives were destroyed by this traumatic event but the film doesn't really touch on that idea they just kind of say at the end like oh we were both really successful or like we were doing so well and then we dropped out and the only real sense of that privilege is in the unintentional subtext of the fact that the narrative doesn't acknowledge that she might be arrested for just doing a bunch of crimes. She's the fun feminist protagonist. So like, if she like goes and smashes a guy's window, it's fine because that's like fun and for the aesthetic. Whereas like, if a guy gets arrested at the end, that's justice and that's how the legal system works. And it's like, what? Well, you're totally right about the sense of like, them having promise and then it being lost, not having any real sense of like weight in the movie. And that's also an area where, like, med school is insanely competitive. Like, so competitive. Even getting into med school is unbelievably difficult. So the idea of these young people, like, being in this hothouse, like, pressure cooker of an environment, and the competitiveness between them, and then you add the kind of party scene and the sexual violence, like, you could totally make a lot of it's a great that, premise right? for a film and instead it's just like denuded to like there was a rape right because this movie has no sense of any world existing beyond sexual violence like that is it that is the only thing i mean it's like when you watch a rom-com and they've just given the protagonists like a fake job yeah so they've got like a job but it's not like you know it's, it's a fake rom-com job and that's kind of the way this film treats med school yes I also want to talk a bit more about the Bo Burnham character, which I thought the movie just handled so badly. <laughs> it made me really aggravated. Because you know something that he's going to turn out to be bad, because that's the way the movie is structured, right? Like, everyone's bad. Everybody, especially the men, they're all bad. I thought he was the best performance in the movie, for sure. Yeah. I really thought he was improvising, like, at least half of his dialogue. I don't know if you also had that impression, but it strongly felt to me like that was happening because he was much funnier than anyone else and he just felt looser. And I was like, oh, right, he's a comedian and I think that he is just ripping in a lot of these scenes, which, you know, if you've got that, you may as well use it. But I was like, mm, I'm going to give you a lot of credit for what you're pulling off here. But um, it is so unbelievably contrived to be like, oh, and by the way, he happens to also be on this tape. So the, you know, happiness that you found, actually, sorry, no, no. And I also felt like if she were sincerely interested, Emerald Fennell, in making a movie about male behavior and like the problems of, of 
male group behavior. You could do a different kind of film with like more emphasis on the romance where she finds out that like he's done some bad thing. Maybe not exactly this because this is pretty bad. But like finds out he's done some bad thing in the past and then wonders like, have I completely misread this guy or has he changed or like what's going on? Because I think there is a kind of like moral quandary about some of the like bad stuff that men do in groups when they're young, which is also part of the med school problem, obviously like 23 is a bit older. But my experience of like straight boys and young men is largely that they are horrible in groups. And if you get them one-on-one, they're basically fine in most cases, right? Because the group environment makes them like perform for each other. And obviously if this were like a real scenario and you like saw this video, you would dump that guy immediately. But in terms of like a movie, you could do interesting stuff with like, well, but I really like this guy and like what's going on. Well, that's what I May Destroy You is doing. Because like they introduced like various different conversations about like consent and guilt. Yes. And it's not black and white, right? I feel like this movie could have gone one one or two directions and be better. And it could either be like a more straightforward revenge movie, right? Where like, she's murdering people. It's really fun, whatever. Or it could be more of like a psychological horror type thing where it's more about this relationship. And like, she doesn't quite know what to make of this guy. And you don't know, like maybe he is really bad or maybe he was just like a dumbass when he was 18 or something. And now he's a good guy, but like, question of like how to assess that which women have to deal with all the time could be a really interesting thing to explore and instead the movie does neither of those things and it's just like nope he's bad too haha i got you you should have and known. also like the reveal is completely contrived just like so many other elements of this film because i mean kind of obviously like you can kind of assume that he is going to turn out to be bad for the reasons you said also his in his introduction i felt kind of felt like foreshadowing towards the idea of him pushing consent boundaries because the idea is that he asks her out in a cafe in her workplace then she gives him a fake number and instead of just like taking that as a no he comes back to her workplace and like demands a real number and then she says yes and like obviously she does like him but I also was like oh okay this is a consent thing but it was kind of a bit more subtextual but also the fact that his introduction is like although like they were not close in med school they knew each other he certainly knew her they were part of the same social circle and he is at least tangentially in touch with Nina's rapist and is at the end of the film obviously invited to his wedding even if he wasn't at the bachelor party. So they are part of this social circle who subsequent to this meeting Cassandra then goes on to like investigate all these people and go on this like more specific revenge spree. But like at no point does she consider that he might be one of the individuals and I'm like this would be the number one thing you assume. Because she doesn't trust men. She's constantly surrounded by rapists. I mean, you'd think that she would be wondering, oh, was he one of the men in the room? Because she knew that there were lots of people in the room of this party, even though she didn't know the video existed. So it's completely absurd that she's just like, oh, I'm sure this guy's fine. And then just like asks no further questions whatsoever. And like, in theory, this is a story where it's like someone who is perhaps slightly intentionally fooling themselves because like they want to have a nice boyfriend. But it just doesn't hold up in context at all. It's like you would be immediately suspicious of him because he was there. He was there. And again, like that opens up a pathway for another movie that is better than this movie, right? If you have more emphasis on this romance and she like 
really likes this guy, but is like tormented by the thought that he could have been involved in this and keeps trying to find out if he was, but can't prove it. That's a better film. That is a better film than the one that we watched. But instead you get like a montage of them and it's like, well, now they're in love. Ah, why did no one edit this? Like, I don't understand how no one read the screenplay. It was like, maybe we should think about this more. I mean, clearly they were rushing it into production. Yeah, they wanted to do, they wanted to do like a Me Too movie, a term which I obviously don't approve of. Um, and like the way they've marketed this, like when you told me that this had like a rain tie-in where they're airing this as like an educational tool at college campuses, there are like a bajillion movies about sexual assault, which would be better to air than this. I May Destroy You, obviously we've referenced many times, would be good to watch, although very intense. But even like mainstream teen dramas and college dramas touch upon this topic because it is unavoidable. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yes. When we were in college, which is not that long ago, it was like, you know, a decade, this was stuff that got talked about all the time, right? Like, it's not like people have been, like, clueless about this topic. Like, people know about this and discuss it, right? Like, obviously, the conversation has changed a lot in the past three years in general, but, like, it's not as though this was some, like, esoteric secret topic. I mean, as I said, I was watching Veronica Mars when I was 15. Yeah, right. I think we do have a kind of cultural amnesia about these things, right? And act as though, like, everything is the first time with this kind of discussion. It it very much buys into the marketing for this film, which kind of relies on the idea of this being groundbreaking. Like, to a certain extent, it's true, because obviously this is the first year when the Oscars have nominated two women for Best Director. And, you know, I think it's we can fairly clearly assume that, um, like, the Academy wanted to vote for something which is, like, about rape culture. And this is a very accessible film, which has had largely positive reviews, but, you know, not overly positive. And also, as always, the Academy is still primarily old white men. So, you know... Who can infer what? There's a lot of different variables here, but um, this is not an insightful or a fresh film. In many ways, it feels very dated. Yes. It feels oh, yeah. almost like, like kind of girl power feminism. There's a lot of movies of this type which are a lot more edgy, including films by women. Obviously, the majority of rape revenge films are by men because the majority of films are by men. Like, I think one film that we both really liked was Elle, which is a French film by Paul Verhoeven, who has had an extremely varied career. But as it turns out, the man who made Robocop did actually make a more interesting and edgy rape revenge movie than this one. Well, I just think, I mean, Elle, I think is really interesting. I think it kind of falls apart at the end in terms of the sort of rape stuff. But I find that movie super engaging and like Isabelle Huppert gets you a long way. So, (laughs) but I was thinking a lot about the movie Wildlife watching this film, which was Carrie Mulligan's last big film role. The movie has nothing to do with sexual assault or rape or anything, but she's incredible in that film. She's playing a, um, a woman in the 1950s who is like the, her marriage is kind of falling apart. It's told sort of from the point of view of the teenage son And that film is so much more, like, genuinely provocative about, like, gender roles and, like, being a woman than this movie. And 
it was based on a Richard Ford novel. And Richard Ford is like a famous asshole. <laughs> He's a bad man. And Paul Dano directed it. It was co-written by Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan. But like, I just think that the sort of discourse around pop culture has become so myopic and tied to like, who has made this thing. And obviously diversity in terms of who is making stuff and who is criticizing stuff is really important. But that's not the only thing that counts. Like, people can have insight into experiences that we might not think they would. And art is mysterious. And, you know, Paul Dano can direct a movie with an amazing female character. And that's great for all of us because we get to watch it, right? And, like, just because Emerald Fennell is a woman does not mean that her movie is going to have any insight into anything because it doesn't. And I really feel like the response to this movie has strongly been like, oh my God, a woman made this film. Isn't that so amazing? And like, it's not like, (laughs) it doesn't have anything to say. And I think we would all benefit from just like being a little more thoughtful in the way that we consume things. It's my goal for myself. Let's all just try. It would be great. My recommendation if people have listened to this podcast without seeing this movie, or if they have and want to watch something else, would be to watch The Assistant by Kitty Green, which I mentioned in our Best of the Year episode a few months ago, and is clearly inspired by The Weinstein Company. Can't explicitly call The Weinstein Company in the movie because they'd get sued, but um, it's about a young woman who is an assistant at a production company with an abusive boss. And it is just so much smarter about abusive dynamics, specifically an abusive workplace, which is a bit different. But um, I wish it had gotten more attention in the award season because I think it really deserves to be seen, but it actually makes you feel uncomfortable and bad. So <laughs> I'm not surprised that people didn't want to watch it. Um, I realize it's not a great you know, pitch, but it's pretty short and I think it is really deserving. And sometimes, you know, Art should make you feel bad because there's, you know, bad stuff out there. As this movie tackles a really unpleasant topic and instead turns it into like, yeah, you know. I mean, ugh. obviously the assistant, which I've not seen, but I do plan to watch. The assistant received glowingly positive responses. Yes. But, um, you know, it doesn't star someone really famous and it's not the kind of film that gets like a big publicity push like this. But it does really feel like one of those scenarios where it's like, the Oscars have voted upon an issue movie which is superficially entertaining and they can talk about as like a political victory but actually does not challenge the status quo in any way. Yep. Whereas this film is actually about the Weinstein Company and might encourage people to face up to some hard truths in their own lives and that's not pleasant. I mean, witness the complete silence about the Scott Rudin situation from Hollywood Oh my right god, now, right? yes. The fact that, like, no studio, like, no major stars, no major filmmakers have been like, we're not going to work with Scott Rudin, who is a monster. Like, the allegations are unbelievable. Yeah. But they cannot pat themselves on the back for, you know, liking this movie, which I find quite politically retrograde, frankly. Like, I mean, it's yeah, a no. joke. So, <laughs> so that's our highly positive take. By the time this episode goes up, it'll be like one day to the Oscars. So you probably will or won't have seen this, but um, we don't yeah. recommend I mean, in a way, a victory for feminism because women can now also have politically objectionable and artistically disgusting films at the Oscars. So this is 
Mank. This is one of the Manks of the year. <laughs> yep. So uh, thank you, for, thank you for listening to that screed of an episode. If you want to support us on Patreon, our Patreon is Patreon.com/slash/overinvestedpodcast. Perhaps by the time you're listening to this, the Oscars will already have happened, or if not, they will be about to happen. But we will have a recap of the winners and losers and whatever happened at this COVID safe question mark ceremony uh, produced by Steven Soderbergh on that Patreon. So check that out. And for our next full episode, we will be discussing David Lynch's Dune, which we had previewed last week, but then pushed off a week to fit this in before the big awards night. So uh, we've now both watched that. You had seen it before. I had not. I do not know what happened in Dune, but Intensely I did watch chaotic the chaotic film. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it in like 15 minute chunks because I was like, I literally cannot follow what is happening. But uh, many good visuals. It's an interesting movie to discuss in terms of what happened behind the scenes. Yes. Lots of drama in that respect. Wild cast list, including Sting, which... It's very entertaining to me, but uh, a weird one. So yeah, that will be next week, and we will be back soon with our thoughts on the Oscars. So, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I talk about costume design, and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.